0: Our reading this morning is from Joshua 4, verses 1 through 9. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant, had stood, and they are there to this day. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, if you would have a seat and uh, join me in prayer over God's word. God and Father, you have spoken to us, and uh, by it uh, we uh, tremble out of a glad fear, knowing that uh, your word goes out. Uh, to your delighted people, and does not return void. Father, help us to understand, help us to be changed by it, uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I uh, grew up in a religious context, uh, uh, Southern Baptist, some would call it, although I'm sure that it goes by many other names. You probably have experienced this as well. But I grew up in a religious context specifically that stressed individual, personal faith experience. Uh, as opposed to something that is more uh, communal. Uh, This had a significant positive effect uh, on me at realizing at an early age that I could have a relationship with Jesus, and that's a really positive thing. But if there was one drawback, uh, maybe amongst uh, several, it diminished a familial or a corporate kind of understanding of the aspects of our faith. I would have been much more likely to hear about a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior. He was a personal Lord and Savior. And of course, that is uh, both true and untrue. He did save me personally, but he also saved the church together as a community. He draws us together, and so there are some drawbacks in thinking of it this way. At the same time as this religious upbringing, I also came of age in America in the 90s where MTV was kind of blaring an alternative ideal of liberated individualism. So uh, I was in this kind of schizophrenic place in between the church which told me that my faith was individualized and the culture which was also screaming at me to be an individual, to be my true self rage against the machine, remove any constraint, family no matter, be true to oneself. That kind of individualism is what I heard on the other side. And this made for a very confused young Christian, because yes, I was from a Christian family. Many of you were also. I was from this uh, Christian family, but I wanted so desperately for it to be my faith, not something that was imparted to me by my family. And I remember going to great lengths trying to describe this to people in high school of essentially saying, yeah, yeah, my family is a Christian family, but I really, I really came of age and came into my faith individually. I, I examined the Bible, and I had a personal experience with Jesus, and that was it. It wasn't that my family was a part of it really at all actually really uh, remember going out of my way to justify my Christian belief apart from my family and in some ways even embarrassed by the fact that I would become a Christian like the rest of my family. I know that that might sound strange. I think that we see some vestige of this uh, quite a lot in the church. I think that we see this kind of schizophrenia that I mentioned in Christian parenthood. I hear often from parents, or at least observe in parents, that we couldn't possibly uh, force upon our kids our faith. They've got to make their own decisions. They really need to uh, come along in their own kind of faith. So you can see that there's even this thread kind of mixed and mingled. And of course, our kids do need to come into a faith that is their own. But is it to be something quite uh, outstanding outside of what they experience as a part of our families? This is the kind of thing that I I feel like I've got to see and address, but that I even see in the midst of chapter 4 here we didn't read all of it we're going to be marching through all of it though over the course of the morning and what i see is is that in chapter 4 i think we see how god raises a family i think that we see how god raises a family not a family of individuals but a people a nation a family of families and so here's what i think that we see in this text what i want to kind of extract this morning here together is that stacked stones are a sign of salvation Stacked stones are a sign of salvation, and we've kind of got to do a little bit of work this morning in order to get there. In fact, I I want to teach you something about how uh, me and the other elders study Scripture in order to understand the Bible. The first thing that we do is try to exegete. You may not have heard that word before, but essentially it just means Bible study. It means to really understand the Bible, the passage in its context, to understand what it is that it's saying. We want to exegete. We want to extract from the passage what it is that it is actually saying. So the first thing we're going to do this morning is to exegete. You may not have known that you were going to come here to do something that sounded so painful this morning, but we're going to exegete. The second thing that we're going to do is exposit. Now you can hear the root word there. uh, Exposit means to expose. So we're not just going to understand the text. We're going to try to unpack it. We're going to try to unfold it and understand some of the core truths out of this passage. And the last thing that we're going to do is to apply it. So we're going to exegete the text. We're going to exposit the text, and then we're going to apply the text. If you came here this morning, morning for some kind of feel-good Buddhist saying, you're not going to find that. You're going to find the Word of God in the text. That's what we're after here this morning. Stacked stones are a sign of salvation. Let me prove it to you this morning. But before we do, we have to understand something of the context of what's actually going on in this passage. We have to understand that even before Joshua came, uh, even before he was, before he was born, long before he was born, there was a man named Abraham. Abraham was selected by God to be his people and to make a great nation out of him. You, you probably know something about the person of Abraham, but he had uh, a son. Uh, he, had, uh, he had Isaac, and then we had Jacob, his son. And then out of Jacob, we had 12 sons. 12 sons that actually uh, were just ruinous kinds of people. There was one who was super prideful, and the others literally sold him into slavery. We know their names. We know that it was Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah and Dan and Naphtali, Gad, Asher and Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin. All of those were the people that sold their brother as a slave. And God, through this story preserves his people. He saves his people. Out of his providence, God saves in the midst of that difficult situation. And those, uh, his people were actually saved in a place and prospered in Egypt, but not before too long. They were enslaved. So they came there, they were saved, they prospered, and then they were enslaved to the Egyptian people, specifically to Pharaoh. Then in Egypt, God's people grow massively in number. But then God sends a man named Moses to Pharaoh, saying, Let my people go. And God, once saves, who once saved his people, saves then again his promised people, leading them safely through the judgment of the Red Sea on dry ground. You've heard of the parting of the sea. God once again saves his people, but they're saved into a specific place. And all of this really matters to the context of the book of Joshua. They're saved into a wilderness. They set their feet on the wilderness. And the first thing that they realize is it's not so great. It's pretty hot. They don't have regular food. They grumble. And God provides for them. He provides for them manna from heaven. He provides water for them out of rocks. God is continuing to save his people, but they are groaning. He gives them commandments and they fashion a golden calf. They ultimately are led to the edge of this promised land that God made to his promised people. They peer over and they see that this is going to be a difficult road for them and they stand in disbelief. And their disbelief after all of God's faithfulness results in them staying in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, here's where I want to stop for just a moment. Because it's easy for us to all go, okay, they were in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years is older than many of us in this room have even lived. That's how long they were out there in the desert completely dependent on God's provision there after having passed through the waters of judgment, they are outside of God's promised place. Now, in the book of Joshua, here in chapter 4, God tells Joshua it's time to lead this new generation of his people into the promised land. Now, here's, here's what I want for you to understand that you don't get is you cannot possibly get the kind of relief that it must have been to God's people to have been there, to see an entire generation of Israelites literally die off in the midst of the wilderness and then for God to come to Joshua and say, it's time. We can't possibly understand the amount of anticipation, the amount of excitement, the amount of celebration, the amount of relief. And that's where we end up this morning. So if you came here thinking, okay, we're just in another chapter of God's Word, what you need to know is is that this is a really important chapter in the life of God's people in our lives. And a right understanding of that is going to show us some portion of that. So with that background in our imagination, I want for us to exegete. I want for us to study. I want for us to bring out the text in order to fully understand we're going to skip around a little bit, and so what I'm going to do is ask you to actually open your Bible back up if you've already closed it, and uh, because we're going to, in order to understand this, this is a longer passage, and in order not to just read the whole thing and then run out of time, we're going to actually hit a couple of things. I've kind of tried to make it a little simpler for us this morning. We're going to study the leader, we're going to study the tribes, we're going to study the children, and we're going to study the purpose. In order to understand this whole passage, we want to get the leader, the tribes, the, children, and the purpose. First, the leader. Verse 1, it says this, "'The Lord said to Joshua,' Now those are, those are short little words there, but what we don't see there is that he's speaking to Moses. Moses is no longer there. God is talking to Joshua. And verse eight says, and the people of Israel did what Joshua commanded. So what happens right from the get-go is that God has a man. He has a leader that he wants to use to lead his people into the promised land. His name is Joshua and he speaks to him. And then he faithfully takes the word of God and takes it to his people. And the people actually, verse eight, obey and did what he commanded. God spoke, his people obeyed. That's not always the case. So it's important to note that under the leader's leadership, the people are obeying the word of the Lord. And on, in verse 14, it says, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They stood in awe of him like they had with Moses. So this is God's new leader. And and here's what I want for us to get is that this is not just a myth. If you are here this morning because you have heard that the Bible contains these really wonderful stories to live by, but they're mostly myth, what I want you to see is in verse 19, it goes out of the way to set this on a specific date. On the 10th day of the first month, God spoke to Joshua, Joshua spoke to the people, Joshua led, and the people entered the promised land. This is actually happening. That's what the leader is doing. Next, what we want to do is understand something about these tribes. Why are we talking about the tribes? Why does God make it a point to talk about the tribes in this way? Well, I've got a couple of questions for you. Did God leave out or forget any of his people? Did he have a plan for them? Did he have a plan for all of them? Is he faithful to Meet out that plan. And here's where we have to see that there are 12 men and 12 stones, one from each tribe, verse 4 says. Verse 5, you can read it with me, it says, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, verse 10, the people passed over in haste. When all the people had finished passing over, Okay, now here's what I want for us to extract from those short verses is, is that God does not forget any of his people. Why is it that God is making a big deal about saying, go select one man from every single tribe and tell them to get this stone, put it on their shoulder and bring it over and we're gonna build a monument. Why, why, why not just any 12 guys? It's because what God is trying to say is, is that he doesn't leave any of his people behind. Beloved, hear this this morning. God doesn't leave any of his promised people behind. It wasn't like he decided Gad is just not a part of this thing anymore. And so we're going to leave him in the wilderness, or we're going to leave him on the other side of judgment. So what we have is a group, all of the groups, all of the family of families being represented here. And we actually get to see this play out. Verse 11, it says the priests passed over before the people. Verse 18 says that the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up onto dry ground. So what what do we know there? We know that the Levites came into the promised land. The Levites were the priestly tribe. They were the ones that were bearing the ark and they had representatives that were going then into the promised land. We get to see uh, something else in the sons of Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people as Moses had told them. There were 40,000 that were ready for war on the plains of Jericho, we're told in this passage. So we know something is happening here. We know that each tribe has a role, that each family of families has a place in God's kingdom and that all of them are going into the promised land. What God is trying to whisper, maybe even shout to you this morning is, I've got you. I'm leading all of my people into the promised land. What we see actually in Numbers chapter 26 verse 21 is is that uh, Moses does a census here in the wilderness and there is 601,730 men of family bearing age, 20 years or older. It's very specific about this. So this is a big group of people that are going through the Jordan River into the promised land. So what we need to take away from this is is that everybody made the trip. All of the people went through the Jordan and all of the people had seen what God has done. Now that's good news, but God anticipates a problem here. He anticipates just how quickly his people are to forget his faithfulness. And so what he's going to do is actually address this problem because God knows that every generation is just one generation from dying out. That if, that if there is not a, 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 a giving of an inheritance to the next generation, that the faith will die. Now, God is too faithful to let that happen, so he focuses on the children here. In fact, we see both in verse 6 and in verse 21, when your children ask you in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? What do these stones mean to you? This may be a sign, a memorial forever, the passage says. They are there to this day. The author literally kind of adds in that they are there, still standing there. God wants his people to stack stones Sawyer and I were on a walk yesterday and we walked to the uh, end of our little road and there's this old family cemetery. It's the Hood Family Cemetery. And what they did, uh, I think more than 100 years ago, is they built this ring of rock around the cemetery and they have people in there from the 1800s. They have uh, most recently, 2007, the Hood family actually has a cemetery and in order to memorialize it, what did they do? They stacked up stones. They put mortar and stones around this, and it's a beautiful fence that over the course of 100 years has not cracked. hasn't moved at all. What God is trying to do here is exactly the same. He's trying to put a memorial in their midst. And what we're going to discover in the book of Joshua is that this is not the last time that he's going to do it. He really wants for there to be some stacked stones for his people to remember certain things by he says, this may be a sign for you. It'll be a memorial forever. What we discover is, is that God extends his faithfulness to all generations. So if you're following along in uh, the printout that we have this morning, the first thing that we learn is, is that God commands his people to remember. He wants his people to remember. He wants you to remember. But, but what is it that he wants for us to Remember. Now, now let's let's go back through this, okay? God's people are ready. They're standing on the precipice of the, uh, of the promised land. They're about to go in. God uh, miraculously parts the Jordan River. It's not quite the same as the Red Sea, but he's doing this with a new generation so that they might remember what's happened in the past. We're about to find out. They're going to go through. The ark is going to stay in the middle. The waters are going to part, and all of the people are going to go over before the ark, and they're standing on the other side, and God speaks to Joshua and says, get 12 big stones. Put them on your shoulder, carry them to the place that you're going to encamp tonight. It it may also mean that they did another one there in the middle of the river, and then Joshua literally stacks the stones. But why? We see the leader, we see the tribes, we see the children. Now let's talk about the purpose. Verse 22, we're going to do some work here. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Stop right there. What is God doing? He's showing miraculously that it takes him to actually birth into this promised land his promised people. That it's literally him doing a miraculous work of parting this overgrown, oversized river that had been flooded. He moves it in dry ground. Everybody goes in. What is he doing? Well, he's showing that he is mighty and that he is, it takes him to actually move his people into the promised land. But he's also reminding this new generation that includes none of the people that saw the previous walls of water that were standing there waiting for judgment on Pharaoh's men that come in with chariots. He, they didn't see the drowning, or at least if they did, they would have been very, very young. And what he's showing this new generation is, is that I will take care of my people I am faithful. Verse 24, why does God do this? He tells us so. It it, it can be no more plain than him saying, so that, verse 24, why did God do this? So that all the people of earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is God's purpose. This is God's purpose. Do you wonder why God would uh, part the Jordan River and allow for his people to go over on dry ground? Because he wants everybody everywhere to know how mighty he is, and he wants his people to stand in awe and reverence and fear of him. How long? Verse 24 says, forever. This is God's purpose. Now that we have kind of a fuller understanding of what's going on in this passage, what I want to do is begin to unfold, unwrap the deeper meanings that I think are here. The first one that I want for us to kind of get as we see and imagine God miraculously moving His people into this promised place is I want for us to make a few conclusions. The first one is this. God uses His power to constantly reveal His covenant-keeping, people-saving faithfulness. Did you walk in here wondering whether or not God was faithful to His people this morning? Maybe you didn't think of it that way. Maybe you didn't have that question written on a post-it note up on your mirror this morning. Maybe it didn't come that way, but maybe it came by way of a heavy heart, a burden that you can feel maybe even physiologically. It just feels like something's just pressing very slightly right here on your chest. It's just a wonder. Is God faithful to take care of this problem that I have this week? Is he going to sustain me? What we need to know is, is that God uses his power, his mighty hand, to constantly reveal his covenant-keeping, people-saving faithfulness. God's people in the story have already been quick to forget this in the wilderness, and they need the help to teach their kids. This is the people that was saved out of slavery, that walked through the sea, that was fed from heaven, that followed a pillar of fire, that received God's commandments, that saw Moses' glowing face, and yet immediately they forget God's faithfulness. So what is God doing? He's saying, build a monument. I want you and I want your children to remember this day that I delivered you into the promised land. This promise is for the Israelites, but it is also for us. God's people are forgetful, but our mighty God is faithful. I want to make this even more real to us this morning because a lot of us listen to this and we go, well, I mean, I wasn't there. I didn't see the Red Sea. I've got questions about whether or not God's uh, miraculously parting bodies of water. I've got questions. Maybe that's what you're thinking this morning. Or maybe you're just thinking that seems so long ago and it seems that God dealt with his people in a different way at that time. What I want you to know is, is that actually this has direct application for us this morning. How? How? Because there are so many people, so many of God's people here this morning that know that they have been miraculously saved through the Red Sea of God's judgment, but they are not on the other side of the Jordan in the promised land yet. This is that already but not yet aspect of the kingdom that we live inside, and it is uncomfortable living in the wilderness. That's where we're living this morning. Is God's kingdom ever expanding? Is it here? Is it established? Yes, it is. But also, have we come through the waters of God's judgment on dry ground because of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Yes. Do we feel as though we are in that eternal, forever kingdom now? If we're being honest, there are some things about the wilderness that we are living in right now that plague us, that's really hard. And what God wants us to do is to remember his faithfulness. Now, just one point of order here. I do actually believe that we are uh, living in the inaugurated kingdom of God. I know that we are, but we are not yet in that one day finalized, forever promised land of his kingdom of heaven. We're not quite there yet. So how is it that we live in the midst of this time between the Red Sea of God's judgment and between the parting of the Jordan that leads us into the forever promised land? We need to remember God's faithfulness. Don't forget. The second thing that I think that we learn here, and this is somewhat different than what we've been talking about so far, is that God intended for family the institution of family to convey the story of salvation from one generation to the next. I'm gonna say that again because we've got a lot of young families in here. We've got a lot of brokenness in our families of origin, but I want for us to hear this because this I think is a powerful point. God intended for families to convey the story of salvation from one generation to the next. Where am I seeing this? I I see it in two places. I see that it, it says this, when your children ask their fathers, then you shall let your children know what happened here. That's what God's saying. So what we, what we need to understand, and this is the point two in the bulletin that we handed out this morning, is that God's people teach their children. God's people teach their children. Now for many of us, we, uh, we kind of resonate with that uh, thing that I said back in the very beginning. We can't force our faith on our children. We can't be that type of family that's uh, really onerous and heavy-handed on our children regarding our faith. Now, certainly there are ways that parents can be abusive in this. They can misuse the authority that God has given them. They can wield it unkindly with their children. But to take your hands completely off of the responsibility that we have as a body to actually give, to bequeath, to give the inheritance of our faith to the next generation cannot happen. It can't happen. Do you see it in the passage here with me? Are you hearing this not from me, but from the passage? God's people are there in the wilderness. God's leading them across. And God says, set up stones, stack them high. I want one from every family so that everybody can point back to a great, great, great grandfather and say, he was one of the ones that stacked one of these stones, What are you remembering? We're remembering that God is faithful to save his people. After 40 years in the wilderness, after 40 years in the wilderness, God is faithful to save. And he wants the children to know about it. So so we see this theme throughout scripture that uh, parents are to raise their children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. That passage does not say, Parents are supposed to have children, take their hands off of them, and let them express their true identities and figure out what life is like on their own. That's a terrible idea. I mean, it's just terrible. The idea that a seven-year-old knows what is best for them or knows the way that they should go or can instruct themselves on what is righteous and holy is nonsense. Beloved people, we have a responsibility that when our children see the uh, stones that are stacked up in our lives and they say, what do these stones mean to you? Our fathers can answer them, God is faithful to save. What an amazing promise that is. Now, here's where I want to be very sensitive. Some of us did have really onerous, overreaching, unkind parents. I don't want at all to justify that. But honestly, that's not the problem that I see in the church today. I see, uh, I see a parenthood that doesn't really own, that doesn't really try to found a faith for their children, that, that maybe includes a few things in the proximity of their lives that are Christian, but that in no way really tries to give an inheritance of faith from one generation to the next. And should we be surprised that Christianity is not thriving here in our communities, in our culture, in our nation, we ought not be surprised at all. God's people teach their children about God's strength, about his trustworthiness, and about his rescue plan. And what we need to understand, fathers especially, is that Satan hates God's family. He hates God's family. He hates you, and he hates your family. Some of you may have not ever viewed what has happened in your family through the lens of just going, Satan hated my family, and that's why my parents got a divorce. Some of us may not have ever uh, realized that it was works and forces of darkness that led to the disintegration or the despair that we found in our families of origin. Is that a hard truth? It is. Do I deliver that to you with any kind of excitement this morning? I don't. But do I think that there is actually some amount of healing that can be had just to know that there are spiritual forces at work that hate family? If God created an institution to give faith from one generation to the next, to give an inheritance from this generation to the next, wouldn't Satan be so crafty to lie to us and say that there is such thing as a modern family? to say that, uh, that, that uh, family can happen in a variety of different ways that include things that God specifically said were not okay. I think we've got to be serious. We've got to be sober about this fact. What we need to know is that God created the institution of family because God wanted to give an inheritance of faith to the next generation. The third thing that I see in this is that God stacks stones, not just us, so this passage is about how God commands the stacking of stones, but I think that God is the one that stacks stones. He's the one that manufactures monuments. He's the one that raises reminders. He's the one that sets signs in our midst so that we might remember his mighty faithfulness. God commanded his people to stack stones in this passage. But when they get into the promised land, what are they doing next? (laughs) They're building a temple. And God is commanding it of them. So they're not just uh, stacking these stones, building these monuments, creating these signs to remember God's faithfulness. Eventually, God is going to command his people to build a temple. But here's where it gets good. Here's where we need to understand that when I say, that uh, God stacks stones as a sign for salvation. I'm not just talking about physical stones. I'm talking about spiritual ones. Jesus wanting to come and to build a church, to build a beautiful stack of stones in us, Jesus coming to do that says that he is the one that is the cornerstone. That he's the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And that he was the one that actually, when he came, was going to be torn down and then rebuilt in three days. Do you remember this story? We see it in John chapter two, verse 19, that Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. And they acted incredulously. They said, it took us decades to build this temple. Are you going to rebuild it in three days? And of course, he wasn't talking about the physical temple. What he was talking about was himself. He was going to be torn down as the one true temple and he was going to be raised up. He's going to be restacked he was going to be the stack of stones. He was going to be the manly monument, the symbol of our faith. He was going to be the one that teaches us about resurrection. Here's where these things get very hopeful, is that Jesus is the of stones. He's the salvation sign. He's the memorial forever, as this passage would say. And what he's teaching us about is resurrection. When he says that he's the temple that will be torn down and that he will be rebuilt in three days, what he's trying to tell us, not about his forever faithfulness the way that he did back in Joshua chapter 4, what he's trying to tell us is, is that he will teach us about resurrection that we can have a firm hope that there is more to this life than just what we see on a daily basis, that there is a forever kind of resurrection. And when Jesus is restacked, when he is resurrected, when he comes, when he ascends to the Father, he is now our monument. Do we have physical stones that we can go to today and say, there's where God taught us to do this. This is where God taught us that lesson. Of course, we, we don't. We don't go to those. Has anybody ever been to a stack of stones knowing that that was where God said, remember this? But of course, we all have because we come to Jesus and we both him as the resurrected king. This is where I get my third point this morning. Restacked stones are a sign of resurrection. Re-stacked stones are a sign of resurrection. Jesus was torn down on the cross, but he was raised up on the third day. What we need to know is that stacked stones stand for salvation, and Jesus is our stacked stones. It may seem like a tortured metaphor at this point, but what I want for us to get is that God wants us to see some stacked stones in our lives that remind us that there is more coming for us, that we will enter into a promised land once and for all. And so what I want to ask you today is, is Jesus your stack of stones? Is he your forever memorial? I hope that he is. I want to apply this in in a few brief moments, uh, just by saying this. Millennia ago, God delivered his people from slavery and then gave them a promised land. I want to ask the question this morning. so what? Not, not just for them, but so what for us? So what for us as part of God's people, his forever people, his promised people? I want to ask you two questions this morning. One is, do you remember God's power to save? What, what stack of stones has God put in your life to remember salvation? For some of us, we have really miraculous testimonies where God saved us out of incredibly desperate situations where we felt uh, not just merely depressed, but on the verge of suicide, or maybe we felt uh, in some way that we were just completely cast out, that we were unwanted, unloved, and God came into our lives and he started stacking the stones of Christ. And we can look back at a specific time in our lives where God taught us he is mighty to save. What, what is that in your life? If you have it, I want you to share it with people. I want you to talk about the stack of stones that God has erected in your life. What stories from Scripture uh, are a treasure to you? What testimonies of God's power in your life do you remember often? Are you focused on this earthly life or on a resurrected life? The second thing that I want to ask you this morning is this what stones are you stacking? Maybe God's called you to actually stack some stones up in your life. The same way that he was calling Joshua and the Israelites to do it? No, no. But I think that Christians are to go about the process of stacking stones. Stacking stones for ourselves to remember. Stacking stones for the next generation to remember. So the question that I've got for you this morning is, what stones are you stacking in your life? What traditions are you kind of uh, inculcating in your family? Uh, What are you doing to lead your family into worship? What rhythms in your life are you stacking up? What catechisms are you using to bring the next generation uh, along? Are you speaking scripture to one another in your discipleship groups? If you are, you're in the process of stacking stones so that we can all look and remember God's covenant faithfulness. What songs are you singing? Specifically, I want to ask this uh, to our parents in the room, not to be exclusive, but just because the passage goes there this morning, how are you stacking up stones for your children? What kind of education are you giving them? What kind of rhythms in your life are you kind of putting in? What I can tell you is, is that um, when Sarya and I started having our children, uh, she read a really good book called Treasuring God in Our Traditions. Excellent book, Um, and we thought very uh, carefully about the kinds of things that we wanted to do around Christmas and Easter and for birthdays that stacked stones in our lives, where it wasn't just a birthday, it was an opportunity to celebrate what God has done in bringing new life forth. We, We have gone about the process of trying to build traditions into our family that were always pointing to something, that always gave our children something to look at and say, what do those stones mean to you, Dad? And that I'd be able, with glee, to tell them about the salvation that God has brought. What stones are you stacking in your family? Stacked stones are a sign of salvation for us this morning. And the biggest set of stones that we have to look at is Jesus, the resurrected King. So what I want for us to do this morning is to pray, for us to take communion, and for us to sing songs to this monument of God's faithfulness that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Please bow with me. God, help us to remember your might, your power, your salvation. Father God, we rest and worship and celebrate every single week together as a family, but not on Saturday at the end of a week after six days of work. We rest and we worship and we celebrate. We stack stones on Sunday, Resurrection Day, the first day of the week, to start off by beholding our resurrected King. Father God, we gather every single week at the beginning of the week around our Savior, Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to worship this morning that you would allow for us, uh, our our worship to be um, pleasing to you, undoing to the areas of our sin, encouraging to those parts of our soul that are wasting away and celebratory where we are able to give you praise. God and Father, I pray that you would love us and bless us during this time of communion and singing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.